Part of that personal relationship with God includes Him speaking to us, and He does that through His Word. So listen now to God's holy and inerrant Word. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. As we prepare to come under God's Word, let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you now asking for your help by your Spirit, that you would speak to us through your Word, that we would hear the voice of our Creator and our Redeemer, that we would be beckoned even, as we just sang, to rest on love divine. Father, we pray this morning that you would, in opening your word to us, that you would lead us to behold the author and perfecter of our salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might be reminded even this morning as we gather together that we are indeed far more broken, far more corrupt and twisted and sinful than we could ever imagine. Um, And so we all together stand in need of the same thing. We stand in need of being reminded of the person of Jesus and His work accomplished for us so that we can be reminded that it can be true of us, that we can both be far more broken than we ever imagined and also at the same time far more loved and far more secure, far more treasured and delighted in than we could have ever dared dream was possible. Take us to this good news, we pray, and change and transform us by it. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And children, ages three to first grade, you're dismissed to Children's Church, so you can make your way to the back of the sanctuary, and you'll be taken to your class. This morning, uh, it's going to be a small class, I think. We uh, have a lot of people out on fall break, I think. But um, this morning, we're picking up our 
series through the letter of James in this passage that Dave read for us earlier from James chapter 2, James chapter 2 verses 14 through 26. And, And it's fitting that these verses are probably the most familiar and recognizable verses of James because James wanted to provoke his readers to think about saving faith, to think about saving faith from a different perspective or angle. Um, You know, in our culture, we've seen lots of forms of provocative statements or, or demonstrations designed to grab our attention and force us to think about things. Uh, we've seen it in the political arena in the form of dem- political demonstrations and protests designed to pro- provoke thought about some kind of perceived injustice or inequality. Um, in pop culture, you might think of somebody, at least I think of somebody, like the singer Lady Gaga, who um, who wants to provoke a reaction or a response in her performances or, or in her, her dress, I guess. But uh, you might think of comedians like some of my favorite, the duo uh, Key and Peel, or, or, or those comedians on the show Saturday Night Live who, who use humor to provoke thought about current events. Um, James was being provocative in this passage with his use of language. Here's what James did in this passage. He took a word justification, a a word that one of his contemporaries, the Apostle Paul, had used an awful lot. And Paul had been very clear about the absolute freedom of the gospel. We are justified by faith alone, Paul wrote. And here's the gospel. He's saying we are declared righteous and forgiven in God's court when we're free. And all of that simply by belief, not by anything that we do. But then James wrote in verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. He's being provocative here. He, he's taking this loaded term and he's tweaking its definition so that people will perk up and pay attention to what he has to say. Here's an example that I heard someone use a few weeks ago. A preacher stood up in front of his congregation, and he said, in the church, we don't believe in interracial marriage. And all of a sudden, ears perked up, and everyone was paying attention, like, what did he just say? Did I hear him right? Um, And then the preacher went on to say, you know, that according to the Bible, there really are only two races, believers and unbelievers. And he was provoking thought, right? That's the kind of thing that James was doing here. He took a loaded term and he tweaked its definition. He's using the term differently to talk about justification as a proof, as a demonstration. You know, I was never good at math, But I really hated those math teachers that asked us not just to answer the math problem on the test, but to show our work. Um, It's cruel, right? Um, But that math teacher, he or she was saying, I want you to justify your answer. I want you to demonstrate. I want you to prove. I want you to show me how you got that answer. And here's James' point. True saving faith is always demonstrated in life. 
it can be seen. It's visible. You can see it. So here's what I want us to consider this morning, these three things. I I want us to talk about what saving faith is not, and then what saving faith is, and then finally how to get this saving faith. So saving faith, what it isn't, what it is, and how to get it. First, let's talk about what saving faith is not, because James gives us two negative examples in this passage of what saving faith is not. He sa- and he's saying in these examples, he's saying that a faith that makes no difference and isn't demonstrated in life it is useless. It isn't a saving faith. So he tells us that saving faith is not indifferent to the needs of others. Right, the example he gives was of someone who noticed a brother or sister who was in distress, who was in need, someone poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and that someone did nothing to help. Just a few vacuous words were, were uttered, uh, made even more vacuous by the lack of any real help given. You know, in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus addressed those Jesus himself addressed those whose lives demonstrate an indifference to the needs of others. Here's what he said in Matthew chapter 25. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And what does he say? For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me naked, and you did not clothe me sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Earlier in James chapter 2, James wrote, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world? I mean, this should be startling to us, that God so identifies with the poor and the needy and the suffering that he would say, your indifference to them is indifference to me. Listen, I get it. In Memphis, it is very easy for us to drive around and avoid certain neighborhoods. It's easy for us to avert our eyes from the homeless man or woman who brushes shoulders with us on the street. It's easy to let that call on your cell phone go unanswered because you saw who was calling on your caller ID, and you know that that conversation is going to be costly. It will cost us comfort. It will cost us emotional energy, financial resources. It will jeopardize and put at risk our feelings of safety and comfort to go about meeting the needs of others who truly are in distress and need. But a faith, listen, that makes no difference, that doesn't make any difference, that isn't demonstrated in actual, practical, tangible ways in which we care for the needs of others. James says, what good is that? Right? He says that's a dead faith. It's completely useless. That's not a saving faith. Now, quickly, 
let's turn our attention to what James says next because he tells us next. He's talking about not about the way that faith is demonstrated when it comes to the needs of others, but the way faith is demonstrated towards God. He's saying in verses 18 through 20 that saving faith is not mere belief in God. Here's his basic argument, and you can see it there. He says the demons have orthodox doctrine, right? They know that God is one. They know about God's Son. They know what He has come to do and what He has accomplished. They have a master's degree in divinity, right? They revere and respect even the greatness of God. James wrote, they shudder before His greatness in verse 19. And James is saying that it's possible for you to believe the right truth about God and respect His greatness, but all it produces in your life is a shuddering fear. And he says, faith like that qualifies you to be a demon, is all it does. Back to Matthew chapter 25. Um, Maybe you should read that chapter later on today. Um, But in the early part of that chapter, Jesus told a parable, the parable of talents. And some of you might remember that story. A master has given talents to his servants. And some of the servants, they went out and they invested those talents so that when the master returned, they could give him back the talents with interest. But there was this one servant who took his talent, and instead of investing it, he buried it in the ground for safekeeping until the master returned. And I want you to listen to that servant's reasoning for why he did this. He said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went out and hid my talent in the ground. And the master called that servant a wicked servant. It is possible for you to believe truth about God, to believe in his greatness, but to never get beyond shuddering, to see him and to view him as a hard man, And it might make your life conform outwardly in some obedience or morality, but you know you're not doing it for God. You're doing it afraid. You're hoping to avoid punishment. Ultimately, you're hoping to avoid God himself. You remember that insightful quote about one of Flannery O'Connor's characters in her story, Wise Blood, where she wrote, there was already a deep black wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. Right, James was saying, if your faith is completely accurate theologically, but you view God as a hard man, if you're shuddering and afraid, if all your obedience is really just a sophisticated form of your avoidance of him, then your faith is useless, and it makes no difference. If your faith is not demonstrated, James is saying, in love for God himself, then that's not saving faith. Listen, this is a hard way to start a sermon, um, but it's vitally important. I mean, and that's why James wants to provoke us to think about this. He wants us to reflect. He wants us to examine our lives. If the faith you profess demonstrates an indifference to the needs of others around you, 
and mere belief in truth about God. It's a not saving faith. And his point is this. You can profess faith without ever truly possessing faith. You can profess faith without ever truly possessing faith's treasure. I read an interesting article a few years ago. It was an article about a two-foot-tall bronze statue of the Greek god Zeus from the Renaissance period. And this, uh, this particular artifact sold at an auction in 2011 for $225,000. But the reason the article was interesting had to do with the man who had originally purchased this statue. His name was Dennis Warrington Fry. And he bought this statue from an antique store in 1970 for just $200. And the title of the article was this, Owner Dies in Poverty While Renaissance Bric-a-Brac Worth $225,000 Sits on His Shelf. His house was falling apart. His health was failing. He couldn't pay his bills, his bills and eventually he passed away. And his friend, Jeff Northausen, was quoted in the article saying, It's hard to imagine what he might have done with the money had he known the figure was worth this much. He had this treasure of such incredible worth and value. It had the potential to change and transform and alter his life, but it made no difference. I mean, it sat on the mantle collecting dust while he died in poverty. James is telling us what saving faith is not. Because he wants us to see that you can profess faith without ever possessing its treasure. You can can dot all your I's and cross all your T's theologically without it making a difference in your life. You can profess it without it ever altering or changing or transforming your life. That kind of faith, James is saying, is sitting on your mantle collecting dust and it's completely useless to you. Well, let's turn the corner second to see what James tells us that saving faith really is, what saving faith is. Saving faith, he says, is demonstrated. And similar to the last point, he gives us two examples of this. This time, they're positive. Uh, So let's talk about the example of Rahab that comes at the end of the passage in verse 25 and 26. It's something of a scandalous example because here's Rahab, and she is a Gentile woman. uh, But even more than that, she's a prostitute. But James has a point to make in her life. Uh, He tells a story from her life when she demonstrated her faith by taking care of those in need. Spies from Israel had come into her hometown of Jericho to learn about the city. And when they were in need, when they found themselves in need, they were about to be discovered, she intervened. She took a real risk, a costly risk, to meet the needs of others. Her actions, James is saying, demonstrated her faith. And James' point here is that saving faith always is demonstrated in a care for the needy. Eusebius was a Roman historian who lived 200 years after the death of Jesus, and he commented on this unique demonstration of faith in the lives of Christians. What was so unique that he had to point it out in his history? Well, when the plagues hit the Roman Empire and their cities, everyone fled. 
Everyone fled because to stay in the cities was to get the plague, to contract the plague, and to die. But while everyone fled the cities, the Christians went into the cities, and they took the costly risk to serve the dying and made themselves vulnerable to getting the plague themselves. A few decades later, the Roman emperor Julian the Apostate, how would you like to be remembered that way, wanted to quell the rising tide of Christianity in the Roman Empire. And he understood very well why Christianity was spreading like wildfire. This is what he wrote. They, they, that is the Christians, support not only their poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid. And he went on in this letter that he wrote to propose that the pagan priests should try and imitate the Christians' care for the poor in order to revive paganism in Rome. It's always been this way. Saving faith is alive to the needs of others, right? It's natural that when we are confronted with the real needs of others, that we start calculating the risks and the benefits, kind of an internal calculator working in our minds. What's the financial risk of getting involved here, the physical risk, the social risk, the emotional, the psychological risk? Here's what James was saying. When everyone else has done the math, they're fleeing. But Christians are different. Saving faith makes a difference. It moves towards the broken and the outcast, towards communities of great need, towards costly sacrifice in places of messy, risky service to meet the needs of others. Let's turn to consider the other example of saving faith that James gives us from the life of Abraham in this passage. He references a particular time in the life of Abraham when God told Abraham to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. And I'm going to reference this, this story a little bit more in the next point um, in detail, but, but it's a strange story, right? God gave Abraham this treasured, promised son, Isaac, and then God told him to kill that son. Definitely a strange story, one that would be hard for anyone to forget. But the point is, and the point that James is making here, is that Abraham himself was willing to obey. He was willing to obey God even when everything appeared to contradict God's promise to him. And this is why God said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 22, do not lay your hand on the boy. He stopped him from slaying his son. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you withheld your son, your only son from me. What was God saying here? He was saying that his actions, his decision to obey, even when it made no sense to him, demonstrated in real ways his saving faith. In Genesis 22, when God commanded Abraham to offer his son Isaac, this is what God said to Abraham. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Do you hear how God is highlighting this for Abraham? 
Take your son. Remember your only son. My promised gift to you. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, whom you cherish, whom you delight in, whom you treasure. What did God want to see demonstrated in Abraham's life? He wanted to reveal Abraham's real treasure in life. God wanted Abraham to feel it deep in his bones that God was the only treasure that Abraham really needed. True saving faith isn't scared of God. It's alive to God. True saving faith loves God more than anything else, and it's demonstrated in risky, costly obedience because of the way it treasures God. Some of you, I don't know, some of you might feel the story's inappropriate. I don't know, but it's, um, it's true, and I can't really clean it up too much or else you miss the point. But I remember this one night when I was walking across the campus at Mississippi State, and, um, and I was walking with a student, and we'll call him Joe, uh, to protect him uh, in this story. But the first night I met Joe, I, um, I met him, and he needed a ride to, to the gym, to the athletic center there on campus, because he had received yet another DUI, and they had taken away his license. And over several months of getting to know him, I talked to this guy about Jesus. No one up until this point in his life had ever talked to him about Jesus. Um, And we've been talking about this for months, and this one night we're walking across campus, and he was struggling. Um, And what he was telling me was he was telling me that he was starting to believe the gospel, that he really wanted to believe the gospel, but he wasn't sure if he was a Christian. And I'm not making this up. Like in the middle of that conversation, as he's telling me this, his cell phone rings and he picks it up and he starts talking. And all I heard was one side of the call, right? Something like, no, I, I can't do that. I, I told you I'm not going to do that anymore and I'm sorry. And he hung up the phone. And so when he hung up, I asked him, what was that all about? And he said, oh, that was Anna, not her real name. Um, She keeps calling me, wanting me to come over and have sex with her. But I told her, I don't want to do that anymore. And so I said, Joe, I think you're a Christian. (laughs) I don't know when it happened, but something changed. Right? He was made new. Right? He was alive to God and he wanted to obey He was a loving God. God had become his treasure. Right? God had become his treasure, and it was shaping and altering and transforming and changing his life. And here's where you might be. You might be in a similar situation, thinking sex only inside of marriage seems completely unrealistic unrealistic to me right now. It feels like a death of sorts to me. In this passage, and James is telling you, saving faith is willing to obey because you love God more than your own pleasure in that moment. Or maybe it shows up in your life like this, that I am angry right now. I am so, so deeply hurt in my life right now that forgiveness seems far too risky, seems far 
to make me too vulnerable in this situation. It, it, it seems like it will be hurt upon hurt. And saving faith is willing to forgive out of love for God and for Him alone. Or I'll never move up on my job if I'm unwilling to cut corners like so-and-so. Saving faith is willing to be honest simply out of love for God. Tons of other applications we could walk ourselves through. And I'm asking you this question in this point because I think it's the question that James wants to ask is have you moved beyond simply professing faith to possessing its treasure, to possessing God himself? Because saving faith, when you do that, it will be demonstrated in your life. Now let's come straight into the last point, which, which will be pretty brief, how to get saving faith. Um, I hope you've picked up on what James was doing in these verses. Yes, he's provoking thought um, and self-examination and reflection and all of that, but he's also saying this. He's also reminding us of something Jesus said, that the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and the second is like it, to, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And only saving faith will set you free to move to meet your neighbor's needs and to love God above everything else in your life. You know, I'm not suggesting here, and James isn't suggesting here in this passage, that you will do either of these things perfectly in this life. But only saving faith will cause your heart to begin to wake up and come alive to the needs of others around you and to God himself. So how do you get this saving faith? I want to suggest you have to see what Abraham saw. Right? My favorite part of the story of Ab- that story in Abraham's life is when A- Isaac and Abraham are going up this mountain. And Isaac is paying attention to what's going on. And he says to his father, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And then Abraham responded this way, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And here's why this is my favorite part of the story. Because as a father of four children, many times my children will ask me questions that I don't know the answer to. But that doesn't stop me from saying something just to get them to stop asking me questions, right? And at some level, Abraham was saying to his son, I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea how this is going to work out. I don't know how to resolve the tension between this command of God and his promise to me. Later, on that mountain, God did provide a lamb in the place of Isaac as a sacrifice. And what Abraham got was a glimpse. He got a shadow. He got a dim picture. He got a hint of something. But today, you and I can see clearer than Abraham. Because God said to Abraham, now I know that you love me. Because you did not withhold your only son from me. Now we 
at the foot of the cross can say, now we know that God loves us because he did not withhold from us his only begotten son. At the cross of Jesus, all the tension is resolved. How can a holy, righteous God keep his promise to you, a broken, fallen, sinful person? He gave his only son, whom he loves, to be sacrificed for us in our place, to satisfy both the demands of his justice and the promise of his love. At the cross, truth and grace collided, holiness and mercy embraced and kissed at the cross of Jesus. Listen, when you see even more clearly than Abraham that you are, in fact, God's treasure, that he spared nothing, that he spared no expense to meet your very deepest needs, when you see the costliness of God's love for you, when you take that in, it sets you free. You no longer see God as a hard man, but your loving Father, His perfect love for you begins to cast out all fear in your life. And he becomes the only real treasure you need. Your heart comes alive and you begin to stop calculating the risks of serving others because you know that God didn't simply risk his own son for you, but he freely gave his own son for you. How do you keep that saving faith from growing cold? How do you fan the flames of that saving faith in your life? Because if we're being honest this morning, that is where some of you are. You hear this and you realize that you have grown cold. Because you can see it in your life because this stuff gets demonstrated in life. You can see that you've grown cold to God. And that you've grown cold to the needs of others. At the end of Abraham's story in Genesis chapter 22, we're told this. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now, I love how in the Old Testament they just named everything. Always naming things. Why did they do that? So they wouldn't forget. So that every time they looked up and saw that mountain and spoke its name they would be reminded of this story. So that fathers, when they pointed out that mountain to their children, they would help tell them the story that went along with that name. And then those children would tell their children, right? It was being told and retold. That's how you kindle the flames. When you go camping and you have a fire that night and then you wake up the next morning and you crawl out of your tent And you see that fire, and the fire has died down overnight, and all you see is ash. But you know that within that ash, there are buried live coals. And the way to get those coals back to flame is not through quick, short bursts of air, right? It's through the long, steady, slow breath that breathes those flames back to life. Listen, God hasn't given you an, he hasn't given you a mountain. He's given you a church. He's given you a people who get together week in and week out 
who through their singing and through their praying and through the eating of the Lord's Supper, they are reminded and telling the story over and over and over again. There's nothing flashy. There's nothing sexy about it. It's just the long, slow, steady breath of God's story of grace, the story of his love for you. And that's what you need. What you need to hear for the first time this morning or the thousandth time this morning, let your heart be warmed by this good news and you'll begin to see saving faith demonstrated in life and your love for others and love for God himself. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, praise you for your word. Thank you that you have not left us in the dark, but that you have given your word to be a lamp unto our feet. And Father, how we praise you and thank you for the way your word again and again, week in and week out, leads us back to the story of grace and to Jesus himself and what he has accomplished for us in his person, in his work, in his life, death, and resurrection. Father, we pray that you would allow us to soberly examine our lives and that in examining our lives, we would be brought to repentance, we would be brought to faith and hope, that we would be reminded again and again of the story of your love for us, that you sent Jesus to die for us. And in doing so, we pray that you would kindle the flames of love in our heart for you and for others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.